You are now listening to the October 29th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Today, we'll continue on with Simon's story. The second incident that demonstrated Simon's change took place on the hills of Gethsemane. Here's what Mark chapter 14, verse 48 says. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Just prior to his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus went up to the hills of Gethsemane with his disciples to pray. Then a group of people came with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. They were sent by the high priest. How did the disciples react? Simon drew his sword, struck Malchus, the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. From this story, we might think that it must have been Simon the Zealot who drew the sword. After all, he was a zealot, known to be carrying a concealed dagger. And Simon the Zealot must have been good with a sword. Well, no, it wasn't Simon the Zealot that drew the sword, but Simon Peter. It is not hard to imagine how Simon the Zealot had to be keeping his natural instinct to strike back. From seeing it was Simon Peter that drew the sword, we know Simon the Zealot succeeded in not resorting to violence. When we look at both of these incidents carefully, we begin to see how Simon the Zealot was transformed after meeting Jesus. He changed from being someone signed up to do violence to someone who was restrained and loving. What caused Simon the Zealot to change? I don't think some kind of moralistic teachings to be kind and compassionate could have changed a hard man like Simon the Zealot. It had to be the life-giving message of Jesus and the hope of mankind. It had to be the love of Jesus who forgave and accepted him despite his history of violence as a member of the Zealots. The gospel of Jesus that has love as its central message is what transformed Simon. That is why we too should be transformed every day through the gospel. Each of us should look at our fellow brothers and sisters as a person transformed through the love of Christ. We would then continue to be transformed and become mature through the gospel. Peter denied Jesus three times. What did the resurrected Jesus do? Did Jesus cut his ties with Peter after he denied him three times? Did he gather the other disciples and say, Look, all of you, do any of you have any idea what Peter did to me? He gave his word to me that he would never deny me, even if all the others had denied me. But he denied me three times. What kind of disciple is he? How can he be my lead disciple? I'm going to cut my ties with him. None of you should ever speak to him. Don't ever associate with him. Don't ever meet him. Did Jesus say 
any of these vindictive words? No, he didn't. Jesus accepted Peter and reinstated him as his lead disciple. In a sense, Jesus saved him again in the gospel. How can we judge another person and make others to judge that person when Jesus himself did not judge that person? We should refrain from rendering judgment against others, even if that person deserves it. We must carry out the love of Jesus instead. Pastor Charles Swindoll is one of the world's best-known 21st century evangelical Christian preachers. He offered seven reasons why we must not judge others. One, we do not know all the facts. Two, we are unable to comprehend all the hidden motives. Three, we are selfish by nature and could not be totally objective. Four, we are limited in our views of the world. Five, we live with many blind spots. Six, we all have our personal biases. And seven, we find it difficult to be consistent. Our behaviors change based on our emotions and circumstances that confront us. Jesus said to his disciples, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And Simon the Zealot demonstrated himself to be Jesus' disciple by following his command and loving others. I hope we would all be able to demonstrate ourselves to be Jesus' disciples by following his command and loving one another. Galilee in the first century was the main location of operation for the Zealots. At around 6 AD, there was a revolt with the Zealots leading it. The Zealots captured Sapori, one of the Roman cities, and declared independence from Israel. They declared, We have overthrown the Roman government and Israel is now independent. But King Herod quickly subdued the revolt. Herod captured all the zealots and executed them by crucifixion on the road to Galilee. It must have been a horrible sight on the way to Galilee, with endless rows of the zealots on crosses, to hear their painful moaning and to smell the stench of their blood. People must have been terrified and trembled in fear at what they saw. They came to realize what happened to those that resisted the Roman Empire. However, the zealots still persisted. They were extremely patriotic for Israel, and they were ready to give their lives for their country. As Sicari carried concealed daggers, they became even more radical to spread their influence. About 60 years later, in 73 AD, the zealots faced their final demise in Masada after having fought against the Romans all those years. About 960 zealots were in the fort of Masada when they were surrounded by the Roman forces. The battles escalated and many zealots died. The remaining zealots came to the realization they could no longer withstand the onslaught of the Roman forces. Then all of the 960 zealots decided to take their own lives. They were determined never to surrender to the Roman Empire. 
Since then, Masada has come to be known as a place where people did not surrender to their enemy and became a symbol of loyalty to the country. For that reason, the Israeli soldiers today would go to Masada to proclaim their oath of allegiance to their country. Simon's blood was running hot with such loyalty and zeal for his country. But when he met Jesus, he was transformed. The loyalty and zeal he had as a zealot was now reserved for Jesus Christ. From early Christian records, we often see a drawing of a fish next to the text referring to Simon the Zealot. He was not even a fisherman. How did Simon the Zealot get associated with the drawing of a fish? In early churches, the drawing of a fish served as a secret code for Christians. The Greek word ichthus means fish, and each letter of the word comes from the initials of Jesus Christ, Son of God, and the Lord. So when the people saw the drawing of a fish, they knew that the person who drew the fish was a Christian and was confessing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the Lord. The drawing of a fish became the strength and hope for Christians and enabled them to keep their faith steadfastly despite the persecution from the Romans. The drawing of a fish was their confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Lord, and served as a symbol for their hope. When things seemed so dark, as they lived from day to day without knowing what would happen to them. Many historians of early Christianity believe the reason why we see the drawing of a fish with Simon the Zealot is because he lived for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord, and his zeal was toward Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord. Simon the Zealot was very zealous for the independence of Israel from the Roman Empire, but he was transformed when he met Jesus and became a zealous disciple for Jesus. Beloved listeners, what was your highest priority and where was your zeal aimed during this past year? God tells us what our highest priority must be and where our zeal must be aimed. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Beloved listeners, it is important to keep the order of the words in this verse. We should not seek God's kingdom and his righteousness in the hope of adding all things. We should keep his kingdom and his righteousness first and live for them zealously. God says, then all things will be given to us. One of the Korean translations of this verse reads as follows. Live a fullest life in which God is of the true nature, which God leads, and which God provides for. Do not worry if you are not going to have enough. God will surely provide everything you need in your daily life. If you live this past year zealously to add all things, how about if you live this year by changing the order of your priority like God commands us? Let's not live worrying about not having enough. Let's live a life to its fullest in which God is the Lord so that He will lead and provide for us. Let's live our lives with a zeal for Him. 
Then we will experience the grace of God and He will provide the things we need in our daily lives. Just as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I hope we will all be able to serve the Lord zealously from wherever we may be. According to the Christian tradition, Simon the Zealot went as far as North Africa to spread the gospel. Later he went to Persia to preach the gospel. He was eventually martyred by being sawed into pieces. So the statutes of Simon the Zealot are often accompanied by a saw. Simon the Zealot was zealous to kill those that sided with the Romans carrying a dagger and a hit list of people. But when he met Jesus, his violent nature turned to love and gave his life as a martyr for the Lord. Instead of being a killer, he became Jesus' zealous disciple and became Apostle Simon. I hope we will all be able to turn our violence into love, give our zeal to Jesus Christ, and serve the Lord just like the Apostle Simon for the rest of the year in 2022. This concludes today's episode of the 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Lydia, the Lady in Purple. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And we are going through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse. God is blessing us, and we are learning about our spiritual heritage from um, our brothers and sisters here in the early church and our apostles and how they shared the gospel. And There's so many applications that we've seen throughout our study in Acts. So we're in chapter 16. We know that Paul wanted to go back and visit the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey, and that only makes sense, right? So he starts out on the second missionary journey, and you can see uh, that he is going back. We can see the route that he's taking. He's going to Lystra. Remember where he was persecuted so much, stoned, went to Antioch, and now he's in, in Troas, and now we're looking at him going to Philippi. Do you see that? You see Philippi, everybody? See it? Uh, yes, would help. Okay, gotcha. So... Uh, during the first missionary journey, he got a lot of persecution. He gets some the second journey, not nearly as much as before. So now help me out. Help me out. Uh, it's not a test, but it would help me if you tell me who's on the team now, the missionary team. Of course, there is who? Paul. And then there's Silas. And there's Timothy. And there's Dr. Luke, yes, you guys, you're listening. That warms my heart. So where is Macedonia? Paul directed Paul to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is kind of the open door to Europe. I thought, well, myself, where is Macedonia? So I thought it would be cool if we could see Macedonia then overlaid on modern-day maps. And so here you see Macedonia, see that region that's in dark yellow but the region of Macedonia is a green line, and then you can see countries, today Albania, uh, you see uh, Bulgaria, Greece, a large part of Greece. So we kind of get a feel for where it is. That helps too. So Macedonia was the Roman province here that we would call most of it northern Greece. Look at verses 11 and 12 now. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace in the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia. We saw where that was, and a Roman colony, keep that in mind, and we remained in this city some days. Philippi is the first city in Europe to receive the gospel. Uh, Philippi was once was a Roman colony at this time, like it says, and it uh, was popular with Roman soldiers because once they retired there, the government would pay them by giving them free land. Hey, somebody call the VA right now and let them know. Okay, that's a good plan. The citizens of Philippi followed Roman law and Roman customs. They spoke Roman language, and they... Pretty much, it was this province and a very Roman and not so much Grecian or any other flavor. And the, what we see is that Rome gave Philippi the 
status of being a tax-free city. Again, I'm going to live there too. How about you guys? No taxes, and everybody there received Roman citizenship. Now, our team, our missionary team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Dr. Luke, and I'm sure they had some friends helping them and some animals carrying stuff as well. This team would have walked on the Via Ignatia, which was the most important Roman east-west road. It's about 700 miles long. I want you to see where it is. I want you to picture something. I think I have um, the map. Thank you. So here we go. See the green road? See that? That's the major east-west Roman road. And then you'll see there were north-south roads. It's not on here. This is important because the Romans would always choose the shortest route to get from one place to the other. So most of their highways went, you know, directly across. Their highways, this one was about 20 feet wide, and you'll see a picture of it here. 20 feet wide, well-paved. I mean, 2,000 years later, the road's still there. That looks like one of our streets here in Phoenix, doesn't it? (laughs) Really? For sure. So, and they're very young. So I want you to notice the mountains in the background. I mean, they, they built it to last. You see the arches. So they're 20 feet wide because the primary reason for the Romans to build these highways was to move troops fast. So if there's problems someplace, they could get the troops right there. Pause. This is an interesting fact I learned that, you know, how the interstate highways came to be? After World War II, we discovered how the Germans had an advantage because they had the autobombs. They had these freeways, and they could move their troops really fast through Germany. And so our thought was, well, if there's ever another worldwide war, we want to be able to do the same. So that's probably the biggest reason why the interstate highways were built. Somebody say, wow. That's pretty cool, huh? So we're just following the Romans, basically. So they did that. Now, traders would have uh, taken their carts along this. It's better paved than it looks right there. They would have moved along. You would have seen a lot of people walking and uh, went right through. This happened to go right through the center of Philippi. So Paul, on a missionary journey, is going to take the main road, and he's going to Start churches in these major cities along the highway. It makes sense. After Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke arrived in Philippi, it says that they were uh, waiting there until the next Sabbath day. It said we stayed there some time. We know they were waiting for the Sabbath because verse 13 um, says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, this tells us some stuff. This tells me, first of all, normally he would go to a synagogue, and he would teach in the synagogue and present the gospel. There's not a synagogue there. This is telling us that there were Jews in Philippi, but there weren't enough Jews to even build or have a synagogue. That means that there weren't 10 Jewish men. In order to have a, a synagogue 
Or to build one, you had to have 10 Jewish men. It's called a minion. Why 10? Good question. The reason 10 was chosen, it's not a biblical thing, but this is a rabbinical thing. The reason why 10 was chosen was because uh, just before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, uh, God said if there were even 10 righteous men, he wouldn't destroy that city. So like I say, it's not a biblical thing, but that is why there had to be 10 Jewish men. And now you could have had 20 Jewish women, 10 men who were God-fearers. It didn't matter. You had to have at least 10 Jewish men. So there wasn't a synagogue. Paul and the team knew that. So the next thought is, okay, we're going to find Jews on the Sabbath somewhere. And so this tells me, too, the weather had to be nice enough that you could meet at Riverside and pray. And so they were there praying at the side of the river. It's also it's important to understand that if there wasn't a synagogue and there weren't 10 Jewish men, you could pray wherever you wanted, but you could not observe any rituals. You could not read the Torah on your own, and you couldn't receive any public blessings. So there's a huge disadvantage here. But this tells me male leadership was missing. Yet there were some faithful, the women are mentioned, faithful women that are worshiping, praying, it says, praying there by the river. So let's go to 13. Read it one more time. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. I think it's cool that often when rabbis taught, they would sit down. Amen. Somebody get me a chair. That was the position. Students would be around a lot of times just sitting cross-legged there watching and listening to the teacher. So he sat down, he's teaching them, and of course, he's sharing the gospel. Now look at what happens. Look at the first part of verse 14, verses 14 and 15. One who heard us was a woman named who? Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now she's from Thyatira, but she's living here in Philippi. Just keep that in mind. She's a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God, which means she wasn't Jewish, she was a Gentile, but she had either converted to Judaism or she was just close to converting to Judaism. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord, while Paul was preaching the gospel, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urges saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And Paul probably said, oh, no, no, don't worry. And she prevailed upon us. Now, you're going to see Lydia is not a woman to argue with. You'll find out that in a little bit. It says that, interestingly, she is from Thyatira, which is not Europe. So she is a non-European, though, living in Philippi, a European city. And it says God opened her heart there in the bottom of 14. God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That moment when God opens your heart and all of a sudden you're paying attention 
How many times did you hear people talk about Jesus and it just went right by you? You never paid any attention, right? And then there was that moment when God just opened your heart and all of a sudden, you saw it, you heard it, and it made sense to you. Now, she heard the gospel. I want you to go next door. Hold your place here. Don't, don't lose a spot. But I want you to go right next door to the right to Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans chapter 1, and let's look at uh, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And I want us to read it all together, good and strong. You got it, everybody? Let's go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want you to go say, the power of God. Say that. The power. Now punch power. The what? The power of God. That's it. The power of God. The gospel is God's power. God works powerfully through the proclamation of the gospel. It's not the person presenting the gospel. It's the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. The message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that is the gospel. Jesus died for me. My sins are buried with him. And he rose from the dead. He paid for my sins, and now I stand justified before God. That gospel is what saves us. The word of that gospel brings salvation. Now, it's not the person. Now, many of you have heard, if you have been a Christian, well, you've heard of Billy Graham, right? He went to be with the Lord a couple years ago. But Billy Graham probably preached the gospel more people than anybody in entire history. So Billy Graham preached the gospel powerfully, but in his latter years, he became very frail. And I remember uh, our family went to his last um, crusade in Flushing Meadows outside of New York City. And, oh, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. I mean, there were uh, second and third and fourth venues with huge screens. We were at one of those venues. And I remember he came out so feeble, so frail, they wheeled him out, and then he was on a chair that kind of lifted him up to this special pulpit they had built for him, and he preached not more than 15 minutes. Not more. His voice, like I said, was trembling. But when he gave that invitation and he had preached the gospel, it was like, who cares about Billy Graham? It was like people flooded by the hundreds, if not thousands, to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is the power of God. Say, power of God, power of God. It's the dunamis gartheo is what it says in Greek. The dunamis gartheo. Dunamis, that is a word for power. What does that sound like, somebody? Does that what it sound like? Dynamite, dynamic, and that's what it is. It's like the power, the dynamite of God. Man, it'll blast through, close doors, 
You try to keep yourself away from Jesus. The power of God is the gospel. That's how he got through to some of us. The gospel is the power of God. So Paul is preaching the gospel. The, the gospel makes an impact. And Lydia's faith, go back to chapter 16, Lydia's faith was contagious. It says in verse 15 that she and her household, she was baptized and her household as well. What does that mean? Well, it means her whole household got saved. That meant, I think her husband was probably dead. That meant that her, if she had any relatives there, sons, daughters, maybe others, her servants, they all believed the gospel. Maybe they weren't there that Sabbath, but she went home or she brought Paul to them and said, you got to hear this gospel. They believed and they were baptized. I got to thinking about this baptism thing. And I was, as I thought back about what we've looked at in the, in the book of Acts so far, and I, I thought, you know, every time I've read that somebody believed, or every time I've read that a group of people believed, they were baptized, and they were baptized right then. I went on to look through the book of Acts. I found 10 references to individuals or groups of people who were saved. And every single time, gang, they were baptized. Where is this thing we've come up with? With believing and not being baptized. I think for some of us, it's about time we catch up with the book of Acts, amen? To be baptized. Now, <clears throat> you were baptized as a baby, so I'm baptized. No, uh, baptism is more uh, your parents wanting to make sure you're saved because they believe that baptism saves you, water saves you, so you better get baptized as a baby, so if you die as a baby, you'll go to heaven. But we understand baptism doesn't save us. Not the water, but the, it's the blood, amen? It's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that saves me. So, getting back to Lydia. Lydia was the first, the original convert for the gospel in Europe. Lydia was the first, the original convert to the gospel in Europe. She was the first person to respond to the gospel message, and with her salvation, a foothold for the gospel was made for the church in Europe. But Lydia, both in Thyatira and in Philippi, was top of the social scale. She had come from Thyatira, and she'd become wealthy and influential as a businesswoman, a very rare achievement in her day. She didn't fall into wealth. She didn't inherit wealth. She started a business. It's not what most women did. She started a business and she started small, and the business got bigger and bigger, and I think she probably had different branches of her business, as we're going to learn more about what she actually did. Lydia's another one of these people, like Dr. Luke, that nobody talks about, you guys. 
Do a study on Lydia. I Go research Lydia. You're not going to find very much. It's just like Dr. Luke. So what we're learning now is really a lot more, I'm going to say than you're going to find any place, but I'm saying it, it's, it's distilling a lot of the little that's out of there. How, how's that? That doesn't even sound right. She had, like I said, probably two locations where she lived. The kind of house she would have lived in, you can see, was something like this. Um, wealthy person's home, a um, couple stories high. Um, Paul and his group were invited to stay here. There would have been room for them. What might the car- courtyard look like? Uh, something like that, probably. That's been reconstructed from the first century. Her house uh, probably looked uh, very much like that, a beautiful place. She was a wealthy woman, like I say, but she worked hard to get her wealth. She didn't slack off. So I'm thinking, how did she make her money? How did she do it? Well, verse 14 simply says, she was a seller of purple goods. And you read right over that, she was a seller of purple goods, and you go right on. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What? How do you make money? as a seller of purple goods. She was a merchant, a dealer in very, very expensive textiles. She had a very successful, lucrative business. And as we're going to see, she invested her money in the kingdom of God. She became a powerful supporter of the church. You know, and even though she was rich and influential and busy, her faith came first. Her faith, and it, her faith would cost her. I'll talk to you a little bit later about that. She opened her doors. Hey, whatever I can do, let me help out. Well, we don't have a place to meet. Oh, yes, you do. So this is why it says... When Paul, she invited them into her home, and Paul must have maybe said, oh, no, no, she prevailed upon them. Look, you don't argue with Lydia. You understand what I'm saying now, right? So they came to her house. She took care of them. She covered all the expenses. She may have covered the expenses for the... Now I am, I am supposing this is, there's, nothing, there's nothing here for this except me going out on a limb. But I would suppose, with a heart like hers and the generosity she shows, that she probably gave a lot of money to fund the rest of the second missionary journey. What do you guys think? I would suppose so. I would suppose. Her house became the meeting place for the first European church. Think of the impact this amazing businesswoman evangelist made for the world. Most of us are sitting here because somebody in our past in Europe heard the gospel or somebody that led us to Christ's family came from Europe and shared the gospel with us. But it all goes back to this godly, great woman. She led the new church. Did you know that? 
She was the leader of the church in Philippi. Some think, oh, a woman can't do that. Uh, excuse me. It's just she was the leader. History shows that. The Bible shows it. Church fathers later writing about it. Lydia was the leader of the church as long as we know she was. And she raised up several other women, two other women that we know of in the, the New Testament. Their names were uh, Yodia and Syntyche. They were raised up by her, and they became leaders in the church, not just the church of Philippi, but with Paul. Paul calls them his co-laborers in the cause of Christ. His co-laborers, not this, co-laborers. Co-laborers in the cause of Christ. And in that same phrase, he mentions them with Timothy and uh, with uh, Epaphroditus and Clement. And this is in Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. So she raises up, she leads the church. She is the leader of the church. She raises up two other women. Those women, Paul says, are his co-workers on the same level with Brother Timothy, the same level. Have you ever heard of that? That's overlooked. The leadership and the importance of leadership of women in that church. And you know, when it goes all through history, that church was predominantly led by Christian women and Christian leaders. That's uh, what we know about the church in Philippi. And my plan is to go to the book of Philippians and look a few years after this church has been planted and see what Paul has to say about it you're going to be very excited to see what we can infer that was going on in this church by what Paul writes to them in the book of Philippians. Another thing about Lydia, not only was she a great Christian businesswoman, a great evangelist, a great church leader, a great mentor for other Christians, she also was not easily intimidated. How do we know that? Well, there's going to come a time next we're in, the, in, the, in the narrative here where Paul and Silas are going to be thrown into prison. And, and maybe some of you remember the story of the Philippian jailer. Anybody remember that story? So after they are released, the whole city is against Paul and Silas, and they've been thrown into jail they're beaten, and after they've been let out and vindicated, she invites them back into her home. Think about this woman. Think about the courage it took. The whole city is against these two men, and you say, you're welcome back in my home. It's not, why don't you guys get out of town? <laughs> this would look bad. She says, Come back into my house. I'll take care of you. And they had been beaten so badly. Dr. Luke, I'm sure, took care of their wounds. 
and they recuperated there in her house. I'm glad to have met Lydia. How about you guys? I'm glad to have met this godly, godly woman. Strong, brave, submitted, and faithful to the cause of Christ. I want to be like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our spiritual heritage and the men and women that uh, were the founders of our church. We're thankful for their, their faith. We're thankful that you called them out of darkness into light and that they believed the gospel. Your power worked through your word and their lives were changed. And specifically, as, as we've looked at the scripture, we're, we're thinking about how we are thankful for this door that opened into Europe. Seriously, thinking about it, that open door, that meeting at the riverside, that woman who believed, led us to the place where we are believing in the gospel and your son. Give us courage and faithfulness. Lord, where we need to be obedient, stir us up. Don't let us rest till we do the things that are plain and right in front of our face. Stir us up to a love for one another. Stir up a kind and generous spirit among each other. Lord, make us like this church, faithful, strong, courageous. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.
The voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. We should be persevering, remaining under, when difficulties come more and more. If we're following Jesus, growing in his word, walking with him, you're going to endure those things that come upon you, persevering. We should be becoming more godly. Godliness speaks of our attitude towards God, our attitude towards him. We should be becoming more and more reverent in our worship. I'm not talking about high church stiff reverence. I'm talking about a heart that honors and respects and glorifies God for who he is, more and more reverent. We should be growing in kindness and love, we'll see here, towards brothers, brotherly kindness. We should be loving one another more and more and more. We should be growing in that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Our attitudes towards one another should be increasing because God is at work through his word by faith, by the way. And then lastly, we should be growing in a love for the Lord himself, the greatest commandment. 
You see, as God's word works in our hearts within a true relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a different mindset towards God and towards ourselves, and thus we want to obey him. We love him. We're to love him with our heart, soul, and mind. And this doesn't happen when we're in our flesh. We don't want to do it. But when we confess our sin and admit our sinfulness and we are cleansed, we are cleansed, we are able then to allow his word to redirect our thinking and by faith step out in faith and do these things. Notice, we have the tremendous qualities here of trusting Christ and allowing his word to bring forth everything we need for life and godliness. And then, do you remember what we saw in verses 8 to 10? Very important. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities... Now, this is a narrower these here. Peter, in what we're looking at later on in 12 through 15, is a larger these. That's the whole thing. This is a narrower these. If these, that's that list that we just went through that we are to by faith supply, add to, to do. He says, if these are yours, if you possess them, and they're increasing, two qualifications. Not if one of them is, it's not saying, hey, I've got self-control here, but I'm really not, don't love my brothers in Christ very much. It's every single one. If all of them are yours, you possess them, and they are increasing, notice what he says, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tremendous statement, tremendous spiritual truth here that we need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded You see, if his character is not in you and it is growing, then your relationship with Jesus is useless and unfruitful. You can say, I trust Jesus all I want. But if you're not walking with him as evidenced by these manifesting in your life, your relationship with him is useless and unfruitful. What a terrible statement if you think about it, if it's really the case. I think each and every one of us can know of times where our relationship with Christ was useless and unfruitful because we were not walking with him. We had sin in our lives that wasn't confessed. But here, he says, if they are here and increasing, then ultimately the opposite is true. You are useful and fruitful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road. If the word of God is at work in a true believer's heart, this is to believers. If you're not a believer, you can't do this. It's impossible. If you're really smart, maybe you could do it externally and you can, you know, make this external Phariseeism. But this is for true believers, not for hypocrites. This is where the rubber meets the road. If the word of God is working in my heart in the context of faith in Jesus, then our true knowledge of him is going to bear fruit. We know who he is. We're growing in that knowledge of this relationship. We want to be like him. We want him to live through our lives. It's going to bear fruit in our responses. It's going to bear fruit in our lives and our obedience. We're going to be useful for the master, a useful vessel for the master. Tremendous truth. And let me ask you this. Are these qualities yours? And are they increasing? If they're not, what I can tell you is, one, either you're not saved, or two, we're going to see something has happened in your life, and it does happen to believers. Notice what he says in verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Speaking about a believer, only believers have been purified from their former sins. You see, 
when you were convicted of your sinfulness and you turned to Jesus Christ, God who took on human flesh, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you called upon him to be saved from your sin, you were cleansed. You were purified. Our sins were forgiven. Done deal. But as we're going to see, we were not just saved for that moment. We were saved to become more like him now and ultimately to be glorified. So he says here, he who lacks these things, the word means they're not present. If they are not present in your life, this is what God says is going on. He says, is blind or short-sighted or has become, literally has become blind and still is blind in the Greek. And is or short-sighted. The word means nearsighted. If I'm short-sighted, I can only see what's right here. I can't see this. He's saying you become blind or short-sighted. Well, what does he mean by that? How does forgetting my former purification cause me to be blind or short-sighted? How am I blind and short-sighted in that? That doesn't make sense. Do you mean if I forget about the work of Jesus on the cross, that's what he's talking about? I think it's more than that, folks. You see, a believer can forget their salvation not simply by forgetting the cleansing, but forgetting why you were saved. Why did Jesus save us? If you forgot your form of purifications, why did Jesus call you unto himself? Why did he save you? Why did he save you? You see, we were cleansed of our sins so that we could have a relationship with Jesus and grow in the grace and knowledge of him and glorify him. To become more and more, to become predestined to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, to be like Jesus. And when I become short-sighted, when I don't see things clearly, when I look only right here, I practically forget why I was cleansed of my sins. In a practical day-in and day-out basis, I'm not thinking about the reason Jesus saved me. I'm not functioning in it. I've forgotten my former purification from sins. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. All the T's, you'll find it in there. 2 Thessalonians 2. You see, the Bible relays salvation in three aspects, by the way. It relays our justification when we believed we were forgiven, we were justified. It talks about our sanctification and then our glorification. In Scripture, you can see we have been saved, past tense. You can see we are being saved and we will be saved. It's salvation as a whole. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning, notice what he says, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saved so that we would be set apart through faith in the truth. And we've been called to the glory of God. Tremendous realities. You see, God saved me not so that I could you know, have a free ticket to stay out of hell. God saved me for a relationship with him. He cleansed me so that I can rightly relate. He is my God. I am his person. We're his people, right? He saved us. First Peter chapter 1, like the Holy One who called us, we are to be holy in all our behavior. He saved us that we would become more like Jesus. When we practically forget that, we are useless in our relationship with Jesus. 
First Peter chapter 2, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war with our souls. First Peter chapter 4, we are to no longer live the way we used to live for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. God saved us for a reason, not simply just for the forgiveness of sins, that initial cleansing. He saved us to make us, to conform us to the image of Christ. What does Paul say again in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Look up a little farther. Actually, turn to Romans chapter 13. You see, as I mentioned, salvation is obviously when we trusted in Christ, we were saved. That can't go away. But we're actually being saved right now, we're being set apart from sin, and we will be saved ultimately when we are glorified. And the Bible will relay salvation in those three tenses. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And do this, do something, right? Knowing the time, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to waken from sleep. Notice this. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Wait a second, I thought I was saved. Yes, I was. But the culmination of my salvation is getting closer every single day. And therefore, I should be motivated to walk rightly with him now. Look at what he says. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, sensuality, nor in strife or jealousy, but put on. This is a relationship. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. You see, we need to recognize that God's will for us is our sanctification being set apart. And when we are blind to the reason why he saves, to cleanse us, why he purified us, we've forgotten our former purification from sins. When we're blind to that or short-sighted, I'm thinking just about this life, just about this stuff, just about my issues, whatever it is, rather than God is working out his life in me, weeding out sin, wanting me to become more like Jesus, then I become useless and unfruitful. But rather I should be then be diligent to do those things in Christ by faith. Now, some of you don't have these qualities like I've shared. And it's because you've forgotten your former purification from sin. You've forgotten the reason Jesus called you out of darkness into light on a practical basis. You may not have forgotten, but you are short-sighted. You don't see it rightly. We've been saved for his glory. We've been saved to become more like Jesus Christ, and it's a glorious, wonderful thing. Sin is no fun when you're a believer. It's fun for a second, but it's always bad. It's always a joy and a blessing to walk with the Lord and be right with Him. And if you've forgotten your former purification, what God is doing, you're not going to be useful or fruitful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And now at this point, Peter gives back in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he gives the obvious inference Therefore, based on what has been said, therefore, brethren, believers, be all the more diligent. Make even more effort to what? To make certain of his calling and choosing you. Affirm that he really called you and chose you. You see, the reality is Jesus called us out of darkness into his marvelous light by the gospel. The reality is he chose us to become holy and blameless. 
And he says, therefore, be diligent to make certain of that, to make certain you really are saved. Well, how is that done? He says, therefore, or wherefore, rather, literally right here, it's not just therefore, it's wherefore, rather, instead of being short-sighted, be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. It's spend your energy making sure of something. Making sure of what? His calling and choosing. Making sure he's called you in the gospel to be holy as he is holy, to have been personally chosen to be predestined to his image. You see, if you're a believer, you should know that God called you out of the sinful world unto him, that you've been forgiven of your sins, and he is making you more like Christ, and ultimately you're going to be glorified. So how do I diligently make sure? How do I do that? How do I affirm that reality? It's kind of an interesting statement. It's not telling you about works, but he's telling you to do something. Look at verse 10 again. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing of you, And then there's an explanation with the word for. For as long as you practice these things. The word practice is literally do on an ongoing basis. Poyeo means to do. Whenever the term do is translated in a present tense in Greek, they usually will translate it practice because it's an ongoing reality. He says here, for as long as you practice these things. What are these things? Those things that are a manifestation of a real relationship with Jesus in which he has given us everything pertaining to life in God. Those things that we are to supply and apply in the context of faith. As long as I am supplying moral excellence, those things, all those that list of stuff that is evident in a real believer's life who's trusting Jesus. He says, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What is he talking about? The context appears to be, as we look at verse 11, eternally stumbling. You see, if God has truly saved you and you are doing these things because of a real relationship with him, because he's given you everything pertaining to life and goddess, you're not going to stumble eternally. It's an evidence you're really saved. But what I would say in contrast is if those characteristics are not yours and they never have been, maybe you never truly have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's at worst, but at best you have become blind or short-sighted. Look at verse 11. See, it's going to affirm you're a true believer. Verse 11, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there you go, he's Lord and Savior, will be abundantly supplied. If you are truly saved and it is manifest in the context of you trusting God and diligently producing that context of a relationship with him, you're going to heaven. Because it's an evidence you really are saved. It's not saying do this to be saved. It's saying because you do this, it's an evidence that you are saved. The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus will be abundantly, overwhelmingly supplied. What he's saying is that if by faith in a real relationship with Jesus, these things are being manifest. If by faith in a real relationship with Jesus, this is happening, you're on your way to glory. You're on your way to glory. It's an evidence. You are on your way to glory with the Lord. If these characteristics are manifest in your life. But if they're not, you become short-sighted at best. Why Jesus saved you. You're no longer functioning according to his desire for you, which is to confess, say no to sin, and to obey his word in a relationship with him. So we have a pretty simple passage. 
in the context of faith in Jesus Christ and his precious and magnificent promises working your heart, we are to step out in obedience to diligently manifest these things, and if so, it's an evidence we're on our way to glory. That's what Peter is saying. Tremendous truth. So with that in mind, are these qualities yours and increasing? We're going to see in verse 12 that Peter says, I therefore consider it right. I shall always remind you of these things, the things I've just shared with you, things I've just shared. So at this point, we come to our passage. You're saying, great, wait a second. We haven't got to our passage yet? No, we haven't. Well, we're here because our passage is all about being reminded of what we just shared. Look at verse 12 in Second Peter 1. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. Now, this, these things here speaks of the whole nine yards, not simply that small group of things that he spoke of earlier. Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. You already know it.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.